This is week number 29 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 7. And um, we're, for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the interpretation that was given to Daniel by a bystander of this vision that he had one night. You remember the date of this vision is the first year of King Belshazzar, and so it's uh, 10 to 15 years before the end of the Babylonian kingdom some 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar had his dream about the large statue that was made of many different materials. And so that's where we're at in the setting. Daniel had this vision. You'll remember the waters were stirred of the great sea, and out of those waters came four beasts. And some descriptions are given about those beasts, and you'll remember the most description is given about the fourth beast, in that it had ten horns, and a small horn came up among the ten horns, and that small horn had uh, eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke out boasts. And so at the end of this of this vision of Daniel, it goes from verse 2 all the way through verse 14. In verse 15, Daniel tells us that he was alarmed by what he had seen, And then in verse 16, he goes up to a bystander and asks him for an explanation of what does all this mean? I want to know the truth about this. And you remember, the bystander gives him a very terse answer. It lasts for just two verses. And he says that the four beasts are four kings that come up out of the earth. And then ultimately, the saints of um, the ancient one take over the kingdom and they possess it forever and ever. And that's what this vision is. But Daniel's not satisfied with that. He wants to know uh, more about what is causing him alarm. And so for the next four or five verses, Daniel goes into this explanation of what he wants to know what it means. And he gives us a little more understanding there. And specifically, the thing that he tells us is that this small horn um, wages war against the saints and is overcoming them, which is probably what caused Daniel all his alarm and caused him to be upset about this. So he's telling this bystander, I want to know details and what these things mean. And so finally, after Daniel goes through this uh, additional explanation of what he had seen, like the bystander wouldn't know it because he's been standing there the whole time, he the bystander begins to speak back to him. And that's what we were looking at last week, um, begins with the bystander speaking back to Daniel um, down in verse, uh, really not until 23. So that's kind of where we'll pick up, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And I dare not say that we will not finish this chapter today. I don't expect us to, unless you just don't ask any questions. So, but we'll read the whole thing anyway in order to get context. So Daniel has gone to the bystander, explained what he wants explanation of, and then in verse 23, the bystander begins to speak to Daniel. And he says, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a kingdom, will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom... Ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. 
and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and, uh, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And we should add right there when he says, and I kept the matter to myself, what else did he do? He went and wrote it down, right? That's what he said all the way back in verse 1. So even though he was upset and he was alarmed and he was pale, the blood had drained from his face, he at least had enough sense to go and write this down. Because now as he writes it for us to read, it's 20 years in the past for him, something like that. 15 to 20 years have gone on since he had this vision. So we we were talking about this last week and we, we did talk about... Um, verse 23 and some of verse 24 when um, that that specific term you'll remember we talked about this when it says that he the whole earth will be under the dominion of this fourth uh, beast this fourth kingdom um, does that mean the whole planet is underneath the rule of this kingdom Not necessarily. What what do you have to support that kind of thought? Okay, and you remember we looked at four specific places in Daniel where he's already used this type of terminology. We looked in Daniel two thirty seven and thirty eight. And then we looked in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 20 through 22, and chapter 5, verse 19. And in those places, he talks about the whole earth. He talks about people of every language and tongue and tribe. He talks about um, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar reaching to the sky and to the ends of the earth. He's using these types of terminology all the way through to describe really the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, all of these Um, references that I just quoted refer back to Nebuchadnezzar. One of them was spoken to Belshazzar, but it was still about Nebuchadnezzar. And so this term has been used multiple times throughout the book of Daniel to represent not the whole earth. Why would I say not the whole earth? We're talking about the Babylonian kingdom, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel says the ends of the earth. He says to the reach to the heavens, Um, all peoples of all nations. So why, if Daniel says that, why would I limit that and say it's not everybody everywhere? Right. Well, and, and, and we know it's not literally speaking about the sea at all anyway. How do I know that? It does, and um, you'll help me and look back where he says, um, when he gives the first interpretation, I think it's like verse 16 or 17. Yeah, verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who arise from the earth out of the people on the planet. 
not necessarily out of the sea at all. The sea simply is metaphorical and represents all the people on the planet. Okay, so, but why would I limit this and say that when we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, we don't mean the whole planet? Absolutely. I mean, we know there are regions that Nebuchadnezzar did not possess. He didn't possess North Africa, except for a little bit of Egypt. He didn't possess um, the far ends, or really most of Europe, except for a little bit in what they called Macedonia, which is modern-day Turkey, a little bit of that. We know he didn't go to the Far East and possess anything in China at all. So, but all those, those cultures and those peoples existed at the time when Nebuchadnezzar was in power. So when, when the scripture speaks of the whole earth and the whole realm and all nations, it is, you, you have to put off your American mind and what we know today and put your mind into the mind of Daniel and what he knew about and what he was writing about and even look at all the scriptures and look at how much land is actually encompassed in the stories of the scriptures. It's not very much. Go ahead. That's why it's important to realize that we have to have the grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And when he's talking about, when he's like praising Nebuchadnezzar and saying these things, that's the word that the kings wanted to hear. They were sovereign in sure. the world or whatever. I mean, and, you know, there really wasn't that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's time, there wasn't another empire like that. So, I mean, it really was, it was a unique thing. And Daniel's expressing the unique, uniqueness of this divine empire that had not existed before. Exactly. And, and the ones that come after it are similar. Could it be that because that's how he writes the kingdom to the Jewish uh, people, rather relative to Jerusalem, well, like around there, at that area? And Jerusalem is, a, is, is one of the thoughts. What is really, in your mind, when you look at all the scripture and all the stories that are given in the scripture, where is it centered? The Mesopotamia between the Tiger, what we call the Tigris and the Euphrates, right? Babylon would be right in the middle of the of the stories of the scriptures, especially when you get back to this time. I mean, the the kingdoms were based in Babylon, not only uh, Nebuchadnezzar's, but even the Medo Persians were based there. Alexander the Great's not based there, but not that far away, and they they certainly dominated that area. And we'll look at one day, you know, I know this will shock you, but one day, if the Lord wills, up here, I'm going to show you a map of these kingdoms, of what Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom looked like, of what the Medo-Persians looked like, of what the Greeks looked like, of what the Romans looked like, and then there's one that I'm keeping reserved for you, that I'm not telling you about yet, that we'll look at. That is what I believe is the fourth kingdom. But, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on that. Go ahead. Um, so, my racist question. <laughs> uh, if we're talking about the, when, the, when the scripture speaks of the whole world, the whole world, the whole world, what about in Noah's day? Right. Well, I guess the language, now that I've asked the question, the language of it says that it killed every single That's right. inhabitant on the earth. But, I mean. That's right. I mean, and, and that's, that's a good thought. And it says that it flooded everything everywhere, right? And so that is worldwide. There's no doubt about it. Matter of fact, unless God altered the natures of physics 
you couldn't flood part of the earth without flooding the whole earth, right? Because the water would run to the lowest point. And so in order to flood um, the whole land so there was no land left for people over in the Bible-centric lands, you'd have to flood the whole earth because there's some pretty tall mountains over there. And so in order to flood those, you unless God altered physics, which he certainly could do, but I don't think he did, then the whole planet itself was underwater. What's that? Some of them may have been. Some of them may not have been, right? I mean, we, we don't know what the geography looked like before the flood, right? We're guessing at best. Now, it is interesting, you know, because people, uh, I was reading some this week, because where was the Garden of Eden? And everybody answers that it was where? Tigris and Euphrates, right? There's one problem with that. Well, there's one problem with that, is that there are fossil sediments thousands of feet underneath the Tigris and Euphrates, right? Now, the Garden of Eden was perfect. There was no sin, right? So where did all those fossils come from? Well, the flood. And so then you would think if you had the flood that any river that existed before the flood would have been greatly altered at the very least, right? So why are those two rivers called the Tigris and Euphrates then? Exactly. There, there's a, I mean, you know this, right? There's a Thames River in the United States, right? Not named, named specifically after the Thames River over in Europe. There are, there are multiple rivers in the United States that have the same names as rivers in Europe. Why is that? Why would that be? Because the people who came from Europe saw a big river and said, oh, this looks like, and they named it. Maybe. I mean, it was under a lot of water, yeah, right? But if there were mountains, I mean... But when, when, the, when the scriptures, especially in Genesis chapter 2, talk about the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and that's where the Garden of Eden was. It names four rivers, actually, and two of them are called Tigris and Euphrates, and you've got two others that I can't pronounce. That doesn't mean the Tigris and Euphrates that we have today. You recognize that, right? So when everybody says the Garden of Eden was right there around where Babylon's at, not necessarily, not necessarily. So you can't go to the bank on that, okay? It could have been anywhere. Yeah, there's really no way to know. That's right. The topography was so changed. That's right. So, you know, just, just as, you know, I won't charge you extra for that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> this is where, when, when you read during the week, this is where your reading takes you to places like that to understand so you, you can come back and, and talk about this region that Daniel's talking about. So in Daniel's writing, and he says the whole world, I mean, how far is it from Jerusalem to Babylon as the crow flies, not if, if you were trying to travel? Closer to five. Closer to five. And, and so the lands that we're talking about here in the scriptures if you go to Babylon and you draw, draw a 500 or 700 mile circle around them, 
You'll get all of them that are named in the scriptures. You won't get Spain that Paul talks about. You won't get all of Europe that Paul talks about. But you certainly get everything that Daniel knew about. So anyway, all of that just to say when he says the whole world, because this will be very, very important later, I promise. When he says the whole world, he's talking about the lands that are Bible-centric and that are in the stories of the Bible. Go ahead. I'm at the point today where I apply that restriction to the Antichrist and to the judgments that are in Revelation, understanding that there will be worldwide effects of that and worldwide effects of the kingdom of the Antichrist, but not necessarily direct rule. And I'll tell you why. Just think of it. All through the tribulation, not the first three and a half years, but the last three and a half years, what's going on? What do you have? Wars. Wars. Constantly. At the very end, Babylon itself is absolutely obliterated by the Antichrist and his forces. Okay? So these wars continue all through those three and a half years. If the Antichrist ruled the whole planet and had total dominion over it, why would there be any wars? There would be no wars. If you, if you own the whole planet, then there's nobody fighting against you because they're under your control. So I look at the internal evidence, and I think it says he doesn't, own, he doesn't control everybody because he's got people fighting against him all the way through. And so is that us? Is that, your, is that Russia? Not, I don't think so. I think most of the things that are in the tribulation most of the things that are certainly in the Old Testament scriptures are pretty much Bible-centric in their extent. Now, we can talk about that, and we will a lot later, but that's kind of where I'm at today because we'll see it when we talk about the everlasting kingdom at the end of this chapter. He uses different terminology to talk about the dominion of the eternal one. He uses different terminology when he starts talking about them, as opposed to these kingdoms that are on the earth that Daniel writes about. Go ahead. Not when you go from the Greeks to the Romans. The Romans did not occupy all that the Greeks did, not even close. And that's why I want to put it up here. And show you. Right. Right. Well, does it have to be larger than Greek Greece is what you would be asking, right? Right. No, no, no. And and nowhere does it say it would have to be this I do know. It has to control Babylon. It has to control Babylon. So obviously when I show you things up here. We're going to be focusing on Babylon. Now, I'm not going to do that until we finish the book of Daniel and we look at some of the other prophets. Okay, so it's a ways out. Okay, so hang on. So, I mean, all these things, I told you this. I'm reading a lot. I'm look. look. <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> 
Listen, when I taught Revelation the last time, we were in a rented building. Then we went to an open pavilion outside in the wintertime for the adults. If you listen to those lessons online, you hear the geese flying overhead because <laughs> the geese had more sense than we did and we're leaving. And then we still didn't finish it until we moved into a new building. So it took four years. This one will take longer. Okay? So we got a ways to go. All right, so we're back to verse 23. And so we understand. I just needed to review this because what you believe, I told you this last week, what you believe about these lands and these kingdoms will greatly influence your eschatology. There's one more thing that we talked about last week that will greatly influence it. And um, we talked about, you know, the, um, verse 24, um, looking, oh, verse 22, at the very end of verse 22, where this, um, this small horn continued to wage war until the ancient of days judged him and then the saints took possession of the kingdom, right? That's what it says, or something very similar to that. Where is that kingdom? What is that kingdom? I mean, there, you, you'll find most teachers who teach on, it, on this will say that it's allegorical. It's talking about the, the kingdom of God in the hearts of the believers, it's not talking about physical kingdom on the planet, right? So you have to decide what you believe about that. Now, I personally, and I told you this last week, when he's, the, the four kingdoms of the beast are where? They're on the planet. They're literal kingdoms. We know at least what three of them are, and some of you think you know what the fourth one was, right? So when they take possession of the kingdom... It's not something that's allegorical. It's not something that's not on this planet. It's not something that's spiritual in nature. It's the literal kingdom, the kingdom on the planet. Now, that, and we looked over last week at Revelation 5.10 where the, the lamb is being praised because he's worthy to open the scrolls and they sang a new song. And at the end of that song, and the, the saints who are singing it will reign with him on the earth. That's the same thing that we're talking about here when they take possession of the kingdom. Those two things, I believe, link together. And so this kingdom that we're talking about is not something spiritual or allegorical. It is a physical kingdom on the physical earth. Daniel would have had no idea about a spiritual kingdom or anything other than what he's been writing about which is, and, and what he saw in his vision which was the saints being overpowered, that would be on the planet, and then ultimately God judging and the saints taking the possession of the kingdom that had been overpowering them. So this is a literal kingdom. Go ahead, John David. Right. Right. That's exactly right. And, and you'll notice um, in that description it's not just the dominions of these guys it's all the dominions under heaven don't see that about any of these other guys but there you do that's what i meant the language is different when you talk about the eternal kingdom and its dominion it's all the dominions 
under heaven. Different phrase, different terminology, because that means worldwide. So the reign of Christ is worldwide. The reign of the Antichrist, probably not. Probably limited to the Bible-centric lands. Okay? So those two things you've got to make some decisions about or where, where you're going to land because they greatly influence what comes after and what you believe about all the other things we're going to talk about. So you have to, or at least be open to receive greater understanding. Okay? And, I, and I'm not dogmatic. You don't have to agree with me on these things. I just want you to know that, right? We can talk about this for all of Daniel and the in-between that I'm going to do, and all of Revelation, and we don't have to agree. I'm okay with that, okay? You know what I'm going to teach because of the way that I interpret the scriptures, but you don't have to take in what I teach. Matter of fact, I don't want you to. I want you to make your own decisions and let the Spirit influence your mind as he influences mine. That doesn't mean we'll agree on everything because we come from different places and have different understanding and are at different places in our growth and all of that. And so we don't have to agree on all of this, but I want you to be open to what I'm saying. Go ahead. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think this revelation that he got in the, in the third year of Belshazzar is his first inkling that, there, that the saints would ever be opposed by this one who's different from all the others. I think that's his first view of it. Now, he's gone through it himself, right? I mean, he was in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was first ransacked by the Babylonians in 605. He was taken captive, had to walk the 500 miles, and it would have been further from Jerusalem to Babylon, has been set over over the Babylonian kingdom, so he knows it better than anybody else does probably was in control of the Babylonian kingdom when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and went insane for seven periods of time. So Daniel, I mean, he's, he's fully aware of all of that, but he's not aware of this. That's why he's so alarmed by it, is because the, uh, this small horn, who is stronger than all the others, is not only warring against the saints, he's overcoming them. He's beating them. And it's obvious to Daniel that he's doing so. Go ahead, Bruce. What about the, uh, the rock that destroyed the idol? The, the, rock, the, the rock you're talking about back in chapter 2, the rock that destroys the statue that's made of all the materials, I believe that corresponds to this kingdom that exists after the ancient one judges the single horn. Because this, you notice that it's very specific in the, in the chronology here is that the, the single horn is overcoming the saints until, he says that, until the, uh, does he say highest one or ancient one? I can't remember. Ancient one judges him and then the saints take possession of the kingdom. Right? He's very specific in the chronology there. And so I believe that that rock coming and crushing all of those is the same as when Christ comes and there's a partial judgment and he subdues all the armies of the other one. It's a a destruction of their dominion. 
That's what that represents. So it's not the eternal kingdom yet. We're not there, right? Matter of fact, Daniel never gets there in the way that we understand it. And we'll talk about that when we get over to chapter 12. Could it be talking? Yes, it could be. Because that's when the dominion is taken away from everybody else and given to Christ for the millennial kingdom. Is at the, what we call a battle of Armageddon. It's actually a slaughter at Armageddon, right? There is no battle, right? There is no resistance. It's just a spoken word. Go ahead. After the No. Prior to the millennial kingdom, it ushers in the millennial kingdom. There is a skirmish after the millennial kingdom, but it's very short-lived and very non-event. And then, after that, earth and heaven's uncreated, great, what we call the great white throne judgment, and then new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem. That's the way I parse all that. So I don't have any more secrets to tell you. So it opened it all up. Okay, so those things are, are crucial, and I did want to review those. So today we begin to look at verse 24, and, and there's really nothing here that we need to talk about that we hadn't talked about. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and subdue three kings. Now, there's one thing I want to say here. This fourth kingdom is explicit that it is different from the other three kingdoms, right? That's the way he describes it. And a fourth one came up that was different from the rest. And we talked about a couple of ways that difference could be. And what would that be? How could this kingdom, this fourth kingdom, why is it different from the other kingdoms? There's a couple of reasons, I think. Okay, let's take it this way. Daniel couldn't describe it, right? It's, it's so overwhelming and so fierce and so dreadful that there is no animal on the planet that it can be likened to. Okay, that we know. It also, I think this is the most significant point. It has ten horns. Now, we talked about this last week, uh, the the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks were all ruled by one horn. Even though the Medo-Persians were two joined uh, kingdoms, Cyrus was over both of them, and he was a single ruler. Now, this kingdom, and you notice this, this is just one beast, right? This is the fourth beast, one beast. But how many kings does it have? Ten kings. So, so what does that mean about these ten kings? They have to be united and cooperating with one another unlike any other kingdom ever has. Because there's only one beast, but there's ten kings. And so you'll, you'll, you'll get lost in some of this because he'll talk about the Antichrist, the small horn, and he'll talk about the kingdom or the beast. But realize that beast is ten kingdoms. Not just one. Well, the 11th, I think, here's how I say it. He doesn't have his own kingdom. He uproots three of the guys because they don't quite go along with him like he wants them to. 
that puts dread in the others. And so he basically is the orchestrator of the other ten kingdoms now reduced to seven. Right. And the uh, Antichrist uh, allowed to have a kingdom for one hour, so I think he actually controlled that. And, right. Uh, and, and, and how does the Antichrist get control of those ten? He subdues the ten kings. No, they give it to him. They willingly give it to him because God puts it in their mind to give it to him. We'll talk about that when we get to Revelation 17. So, way over there. Way over there. New building then? Hopefully we'll all be in glory then, right? <laughs> Go ahead. Hey, the unfortunate thing is in, in verse 24, what says, uh, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and it says another shall arise after them. Right. So is, that, is that the, is, you interpret that as an 11th that is probably the Antichrist? The, yes, here's the way I look at that. The, these ten kings are established. They have their kingdoms. They have a single beast, so they're cooperating already before the small horn comes up. Then the small horn comes up, doesn't have his own kingdom, okay? He subdues three kings to get his own kingdom, and then ultimately the others give assent to him, and he controls it all. That doesn't go on for a long time. That's pretty short-lived, okay? But... this is how it's different. All the other kingdoms would have had one horn. This one has ten. Very different. Very different from anything that exists today. Now, we have NATO, and we have allies, and we have alliances, and all of that, right? But not to the level where you could call us all one kingdom. Not at all. We all still have our own laws, our own ways. We don't agree on everything. These guys are in unison. They're in lockstep because they're on one beast, And this beast is the one that's compared to um, the Greeks and to the Medo-Persians and to the Babylonians. So in the same way that those guys were one kingdom, these ten are very different from anything that we've seen in history. Okay? Another one of those reasons why Rome doesn't fit for me. Okay. Could be, not necessarily. There's a lot of small kingdoms today. Very limited, right? Remember, it's Bible-centric. And so, ten kingdoms, yeah, maybe larger, maybe not. I mean, Alexander the Great's kingdom was huge. Huge. Way bigger than any other kingdom that's ever existed. We'll look at that. I think we'll get there in this passage. And he'll tell us what he's really talking about. Okay? All right, so verse 24. And um, then we move to verse 25. This is really where we get to new stuff, right? (laughs) He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. All right, let's take, there's three significant things in here I want to talk about. 
when he uses the term, he will speak out against the most high. Who are we talking about that he's speaking against? What, wh- why the term most high? Why not God? Why the term most high? Could be that he's clearly above them. Um, I think he, um, the highest God. Which is what Nebuchadnezzar would have said, right? That your God is greater than my gods. <clears throat> Still holding on to his polytheism. What? Right, and I do think he makes that equivalence between the Ancient of Days, the Most High, and the other term that he uses here, which is what? What's that? Highest one. I think those are all equivalent. All right, now there, now you're getting where I want to go. There, there are, there are nine times where something like this term, well, this term has been used in Daniel previous to now. So you need to look at them with me. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 26. This one doesn't give us uh, a lot of definition, but this is when the three are in the furnace, and then Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace. This is the first time we get this in, the, in, in Daniel 3.26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. So he's recognizing those three as being a servant of someone different from whom he worships. And you remember, this is in front of, right, trumps really the great image that he he built to have everybody bow down to. So now he's recognizing this God as being over the image that he built. All right, let's just walk through these. Look at 4.2, chapter 4 and verse 2. This is um, Nebuchadnezzar's... um, pronouncement to the uh, all the earth and this is the way he describes who got who did this verse two it seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonder which the most high god has done for me so something beyond what nebuchadnezzar could do the most high god did okay for nebuchadnezzar then look down at verse 17 of the same chapter This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. Who's the most high? The ruler of the realm of mankind. Now you remember, link this back to chapter 2 and verse 20 or so where we get the theme of Daniel. Chapter 2, and look back at verse um, 20. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. So who's in control of the people who rule on the planet? He is. He's the most high God the one who is over the king, the realm of mankind, right? Keep going. Look down at 424. 424. 
in this interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come from my Lord, that you be driven away. Look down at the end of 25 where he says, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. He sets kings and takes kings down. He's the ruler over the realm of mankind. All right, look down at verse 32 of the same chapter, 432. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Getting a theme here? Sounding redundant? Look down at verse 34 of the same chapter and you'll see the same thing. Well, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom lasts from generation to generation. So God is different from all the others, right? Because his is forever, all right? Then look down at 518. 5.18, as Daniel was speaking to Belshazzar, 5.18, O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. He has the power to do so, right? Because he's the ruler of the realm of mankind. And then finally in 521, he says it. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was the place of wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets it over whomever he wishes. So when you get to chapter 7 and you get to verse 25, And he speaks out, Daniel speaks out and he says he will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. Who is the most high? He's the ruler of the realm of mankind. And who's speaking against him? The small horn who has what? Eyes like a man and a mouth He's human. So here you have a man speaking out against the most high God who's the ruler of the realm of mankind. What do you think is going to happen? This is not going to go on very long, right? When you speak against the one who's the ruler of mankind, you're not going to win. Yes, as he gains authority, he gains authority only because God gives it to him. Right. Right. 
Right. And, and this is, I mean, we, we see this over at the Antichrist in Revelation. He's boisterous enough to blaspheme God to his face. And God allows us to endure for a time for his own purposes. Well, think about what he said. These four beasts are kings that arise from the earth. And the others that we've discussed were men. Had a ruler who was centric, had all the power. So I don't think there's any reason to think that it's any different for the fourth beast. These are literal kings, men, who reign over their kingdoms. Ultimately, there's one who comes in, subdues three of them. Actually, I think he calls for them to be subdued and they're laid at his feet and then he's the one speaking against God and if if you look at the description of the Antichrist given in Revelation it is a human he's given the power by Satan and he does specific acts in his kingdom on the planet so this is a man now he's demon possessed I would say controlled really by the evil one but he's still a human. This is a beast that has ten kingdoms that one guy comes in and takes over all ten of the kingdoms that cooperate and work together with one another. That's what we're seeing here in Daniel, right? This is different than all the other kingdoms. This is one, one of the reasons it's a little hard to get your mind around it because it's different than all the others. That's what he said. Go ahead, Larry. Right. Could we, would it be a valid hermeneutic to translate the saints to be equivalent of the church? The term church is uniquely New Testament, right? So you have to be very careful when you use the term church. True believers would be one way to say it. The word church, and we'll get all into this because your hermeneutic will have to interpret what is meant by the church and is it equivalent to all of the believers in the Old Testament? Is it an equivalent to the nation of Israel? I'll tell you right up front, I don't think so. I'm a dispensationalist. My hermeneutic is historical, grammatical, and I think the scripture is clear that there's a difference between the church and Israel. Okay? As upfront as I can be with you. So, the word church I wouldn't use here. Believers in God, true believers, that term you can use. And this is what Daniel sees, as those people are being worn down and overcome by this small horn and the forces aligned with him. They're being beat. They're losing those who believe in the highest one. That would be Daniel's understanding of it. Now, Daniel's Jewish. The word church is very specific. Very specific. And it's New Testament only. Daniel had no idea of something called the church. Go ahead. Christ Jesus, you were formerly far off, but brought near by the 
Well, the church is just believers, right? The true church. All right, be careful because I can use that verse and build an argument for Israel and the church being one where I believe Israel and the church are separate. So you have to be very careful. We will get into that much later, okay? Because in the first three chapters of of, uh, the book of Revelation, he speaks to the churches. So we'll get there. Okay, you just can't get there now because the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. Go ahead. Wouldn't it be an extension that Israel is really kind of a people group in the, in the mind at that, this time? And the church goes across people groups. It's not a particular people group at all. I, yes, but be careful because there are legitimate argue, arguments, and I can articulate them, that would convince you that the church and, and the Jews... <laughs> Are one, but I'm not going to do that. Okay, I'll point out the fallacies in those arguments, not use them to dupe you. Okay, because I believe they're separate. All right, now you're getting way off track because this is not what Daniel is about. Okay, go ahead. Well, you're right, and I can build an argument for pre-trib. Mid trib and post trib, I can and, and you'll go wow. What are the differences between those? Unless you study, because there you can you can build these arguments. I promise, out of the scriptures, you got to use all of the scriptures, and your hermen, your in your eschatology must embrace all of them, not part of them. All of them. Go ahead, John David. Right. Right. And just think about Abram when he was Abram. He worshipped Melchizedek, right? Who was the priest of the Holy One. So, okay. All right, let's go elsewhere. Okay? Why don't we just call them children of Abraham? Well, let's call them what, what Daniel called them. Saints. saints. Right? <laughs> we'll call them saints. And they're being overcome and they're being subdued. All right, now, <laughs> you people... All right, now, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law. What's he going to alter? He intends to make alterations in times and law. What's he going to change? Calendar, Calendar, maybe. That would be times, right? You're Daniel, okay? You're writing this. He's going to alter the law and times. 
What's he altering? He's altering the commandments of God given as the laws of God and the coordination with those of the feasts and the times of worship and the times that are set aside and holy to God. He's going to change the way that you worship is what this is talking about. Things that the Jews, you know, think about Daniel prayed three times a day. In chapter 1, wouldn't eat the food of the king. Why not, Daniel? Because my laws tell me I can't. Why do you pray three times a day? Because I'm worshiping God. Well, you can't do that anymore. And this Feast of Tabernacles, the Pentecost, all that, you can't do any of that. None of that is no longer allowed. I'm going to alter that. And so this is what you're going to have to do. He's going to change the way that people worship their God. Now, if you think about it, if you think about it for a while, you'll realize the Greeks didn't do that. The Romans didn't do that. The Babylonians didn't do that. They tried to, but didn't do that. Medo-Persians didn't do that. None of these other kingdoms did that. Changed the way that people worshipped. And that's what he's intending to do. I'm going to change who you worship and how you worship. And we know ultimately he says you worship me. Not at the beginning. He intends to change the way that people worship and who they worship. Go ahead. seven-day week yeah but you know and there would be disagreement in this room about seven literal days right we probably all don't agree on that and i'll just tell you i'm a young earth guy probably younger than you are and i believe in a literal creation that lasted seven days earth days six days and then seventh day of rest right i mean i'm a very young earth guy and so probably younger earth than most people in here. But that's, that's some of our differences, right? I have reasons why I believe what I believe. You probably have reasons why you believe. And we can get along. We're okay. We're all in the kingdom, right? It's not a problem. Go ahead. Oh, it is. To, to change who you worship and how you worship. This is what is so different about this fourth beast. He's going to change the way that the world, so all of this lands that we're talking about, worship and who they worship. But notice it says he tried. Let's say he tries. I think he's pretty successful for a period of time. And I'll tell you why later. Okay? When, when I... When I identify who I believe the fourth kingdom is, now everybody's on the edge, right? It'll be obvious of how successful. You know, because right now we have the spirit of Antichrist among us, right? It's what John the Apostle wrote, right? Spirit of Antichrist is already here, and it's working. 
is working already. Although the Antichrist is not here, a single individual, one human who works, who realms over, the, who uh, is over the beast. Although he's not here, still the spirit of Antichrist, meaning the things he's going to try to do, are already in place. And, right, right, and they have, and they're still here. They haven't gone away. I saw a hand. Yeah. You know, it's actually singular. Law. I think it would include the, the Ten Commandments, which would be to all people. So not just the dietary laws and those types of things. All the laws of God. So I think it's broader than just that. Go ahead. Yeah, you you can't you can't worship Jehovah. Okay, so it would basically be our religious freedoms would be taken away. Well, and you know that's going to happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Yeah, well, and and who you worship, what the law will say, the law, the legal law of the land will say who you can worship and who you can't, and how you worship that will be dictated to you also, meaning you're going to have to go through the motions or they're going to kill you which you can think about a few places that are like that today, right? So that's what I believe he means by times and law. But there will be influences further than that because you remember there will be proselytes who will not be limited to that reign. So they may go and try and do the same thing somewhere else. You see that even happening today. Right? So, again, there's influence, but that doesn't mean the Antichrist and the beast is over all those kingdoms. I don't think you can make that jump, which people today, you probably never heard it another way, right? The Antichrist rules the whole world, and everybody has to have a mark of 666 and all of this, right? I mean, that's the way it's taught. I don't know that's accurate. Don't know that that's accurate. We'll talk about it in great detail later. All right, there's one more thing in this verse that I would like to get to that we're not going to get to, right? What time is it? Ten after. Like I said, we're not going to get to it today. So we'll pick up with time and times and half a time next week, right? Thanks for your time.